Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. This is Marianne Sullivan, and today I will be talking to Will Lowry of Animal Outlook about a case that really has everyone in the animal law community talking. Several years ago, Animal Outlook conducted this undercover investigation of Martin Farms in Pennsylvania, which is a dairy farm that proved to be the locus of hideous cruelty to animals. Some of that cruelty was what we often call, quote unquote, gratuitous, which means it's not in the interests of the farm, it's just meanness and ugliness. But some of it consisted of the way Martin Farms conducted its business, such as the horrendous suffering inflicted upon calves in the dehorning process. After years, literally years, of legal effort by Animal Outlook, the case ended up in an appellate court in Pennsylvania, which said, yeah, this, this is bad. Well, they said a lot more than that, and much of it implicates one of the most nefarious legal tricks of the trade that the industry has used to avoid consequences for their illegal treatment of animals, the customary or normal farming practice exemption. So before we get to that interview, I'd just like to quickly ask for your support for Our Hen House, which is, of course, the not-for-profit that produces the Animal Law Podcast along with the Our Hen House Podcast. If you can help out, please go to ourhenhouse.org slash donate. There you can join our flock for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make whatever donation you can afford and are comfortable with. And while you're at it, if you're not already a listener of Our Hen House, our other podcast, please check it out. One recent interview that I am sure you will find interesting is episode 635, which includes a wonderful conversation with law professors Joan Schaffner and Raj Reddy on the campaign for the adoption of a treaty that will create international standards for animal welfare. You also won't want to miss Jasmine Singer's interview with the thoughtful and dynamic liberation activist Eloisa Trinidad, who is the executive director of both the Vegan Activist Alliance and Chili's on Wheels New York, or my interview with Rachel Dreskin, who gets us up to date on the work of the Trade Association, the Plant-Based Foods Association. Now, let's get to that interview. Will Lowry is legal counsel for Animal Outlook, where he is engaged in numerous lawsuits against the government and animal agriculture using a wide range of legal strategies, including administrative challenges, false advertising, and animal cruelty laws, and he also provides support for its investigations work. Prior to joining Animal Outlook, Will clerked in the Superior Court of New Jersey and interned with the Virginia Attorney General's Animal Law Unit and the Animal Legal Defense Fund. Before law school, Will worked a lengthy corporate career and, in his free time, helped run several nonprofits focused on a variety of animal issues. He will be joining me right after this. Mark your calendars now for the Animal Law Conference, November 4th through 6th in Portland, Oregon. Co-hosted by the Animal Legal Defense Fund and the Center for Animal Law Studies at Lewis and Clark Law School, this year's conference marks the 30th anniversary of this premier animal law event. Returning to the veg-friendly oasis of Portland, Oregon, the conference features discussions with animal law experts across multiple disciplines. Join in person, live stream the event from the comfort of your home, or watch the sessions anytime on demand after the event. Special guest Miyoko Schinner, the founder and CEO of Miyoko's Creamery, will deliver an inspiring keynote address, and CLE credits will be available to attorneys, including ethics credits. Registration opens in mid-June. Don't miss your chance to join the conversation and immerse yourself in the community. For more information, visit animallawconference.org. That's animallawconference.org. 
Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast, Will. Thank you very much for having me. I'm thrilled to have you. I've wanted to have you for a long time because I've heard nothing but great things about your work. And now the case has come that we all want to talk about, and you are the person to talk about this case with me. I'm super excited. It's a really interesting case and about a subject that is so near and dear to my heart. But let's start off with the facts. Tell us about the undercover investigation that Animal Outlook did that started this case. Absolutely. We did an undercover investigation in late 2018 at a dairy farm in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania called Martin Farms. We had an individual employed there as a milker at the dairy farm for a little bit over two months. And so um, this was an employment-based investigation. That individual during the course of those two months, as you might expect, documented a host of activities that we believed constituted cruelty or neglect under Pennsylvania law. And I won't go into too many graphic details, but a lot of it was standard practice type activity, dehorning calves without pain medication, pushing down cows with tractors. And then we also documented some sort of overt or more egregious cruelty. So slapping, kicking, stomping, improper euthanasia and those types of things. And so that was the basis for this case was that investigation in late 2018. And that is exactly why it's such an important case, because so much of what you document, of course, there was the what we often called the egregious cruelty. I mean, it's all egregious, but or the gratuitous cruelty, the cruelty that doesn't serve any institutional purpose. But the fact that so much of this cruelty was the kind that often a defense is presented that this is just the way we do it. That's what we're going to focus on. There was an administrative decision from the dairy industry itself, right? Disapproving of the treatment of the cows here. Was that the was that the first intervention that happened here? Yeah, there was a a couple of things that happened from the industry. I mean, first and foremost, like we always see in these cases, Martin Farms issued a statement saying they were shocked and appalled and all the other typical buzzwords that you see. And then to your point, Marianne, the farm, Farmers Assuring Responsible Management, sort of a dairy welfare group, issued a statement, I believe that was April 4th of 2019. And what's key about their statement is that they indicated that they saw instances of willful mistreatment. So those words are key. It gets to sort of the mens rea of the crime. And it was helpful that that statement was made. And then Martin Farms was subsequently put on probation. That term willful mistreatment does become really interesting here. And the whole mens rea issue around animal cruelty is I find confusing, and I've been thinking about it for a long time. But the use of that term willful, obviously, is important. And we will definitely get into that. But I just want to talk a little bit more about about the factual basis. How big is the Pennsylvania dairy industry? It's large. Um, I think the last time I checked, it was maybe top eight or top 10 in the country. Pennsylvania is sort of, I mean, people sometimes think of Pennsylvania as Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, these metropolitan areas. But There is a very large swath of agricultural country in Pennsylvania. I think dairy is probably in the top 10. Yeah, Pennsylvania is a really interesting state. It really has a wide range of both geography and culture and is a huge agricultural state. And before we get to the facts of this case, can you just give us an overview of Pennsylvania's cruelty laws insofar as they're relevant here? So Pennsylvania has multiple different statutes that came into play here. There's a neglect statute, which is sort of your more passive acts of failing to provide water, veterinary care. Then you have sort of a base level cruelty statute, which is mirrors a lot of statutes across the country. It talks about sort of mistreating, ill-treating, overloading. And then, as you mentioned, Marianne, it has a number of different mens rea requirements, which sounds like we'll get into They also have a more severe aggravated cruelty statute, and that covers things like causing severe bodily injury, 
burning, beating, those types of activities. And then what was fundamental to this case was the normal agricultural operations exemption, which is section 5560 of their code. And that is, is like I said, fundamental to this case, the interpretation of that. So you have sort of three tiers of animal protection laws plus this exemption, and those were all pretty paramount to this case. And the exemption has actually been previously interpreted by the courts. And I have to say, David Wilson and I wrote an article about customary farming practice exemptions like 20 years ago, and we referenced this case. So that's that's the last time this this law was interpreted, which is which shows you how often these cases get brought by the authorities because it's just it never goes to court to get interpreted. But that interpretation ended up being pretty important here because the can you just go over the wording of the Pennsylvania customary farming practice exemption because it's pretty it sounds broader than the court interpreted it, I think. It's actually a pretty long wording. Um, There's sort of two statutes. There's the exemption that says cruelty, neglect, and aggravated cruelty are exempted if it's done in the course of normal agricultural operations. And then you have to go to the definition statute, which gives probably a 80-word definition. But in short terms, you know, it starts with this word normal. So the word normal is key. And I think that was a key point of difference between us and the district attorney here. So it talks about normal practices that are done year after year by farmers. And then it has a whole bunch of other qualifiers that talk about when preparing animals for market or production, you know, whether it's agriculture or aquaculture. And so you would read it, and some people at first blush may say anything related to farming is exempted. That's not what it says. And as you mentioned, Marianne, there was this Barnes case that defined it a little clearer 20 years ago. But there are a number of qualifiers in that definition, and those were very important in this case. Yeah. Can you just go into a little bit about how the court qualified the definition? Because that does seem to have been hugely important here. So Barnes, as you mentioned, you're right. Like that was the case that decided the exemption or, or spoke to it. There was another case, Balog, that was about cockfighting, but they never really got into it. But Barnes is a case about um, horse neglect. And it was actually two veterinarians in the 90s that were neglecting horses. And this question came up about what does normal agricultural operations mean? And the defendants in that case had raised sort of a constitutional vagueness challenge. And so the court squarely addressed, you know, would the average person know what this means? Does it apply here? And the court really honed in on that word normal, which is sort of the first word of the definition. And they they issued a, a, a wording that essentially said normal means routine and accepted. And so that was key. And so we've now gone from the word normal to the words routine and accepted. And the court also talks about, you know, it's clear that they need to happen over and over again. So the court sort of taken this ambiguous definition, narrowed it down to these key words, routine and accepted. Accepted means something like it has an important meaning under the law. And that was certainly helpful for our case. Yeah, that that really does narrow it down. And we'll see how how the arguments went in this case that they wanted to interpret normal in a really broad way that would accept almost anything. So uh, just to finish a little bit on the setting up the case, when you first brought this evidence to the attention of the local authorities, what happened? So that we waited for over a year is the short answer to that. And so we brought it to authorities. We brought it to the Pennsylvania State Police and the district attorney in January of 2019, shortly after our investigation concluded. There were some meetings early on and then There were some discrepancies where the state police told the media they didn't get a complaint for three months later. That wasn't true. But long story short, after the course of probably 14 months of them allegedly reviewing the evidence, trying to decide whether that was a case. By them, you mean the DA, right? 
the Pennsylvania State Police in conjunction with the district attorney. Okay, okay. They, they ultimately issued a press release after about 14 months that basically just said that they are not pressing charges. There was really no further clarification given. We explored sort of public records laws, couldn't get any further information. But from our perspective, it, it was sort of strung on for 14 months and then ultimately concluded no charges are being pressed, which, which felt a little dubious to us. Yeah, and, and not really that unusual, right? I mean, this is not something that you haven't run into before. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we run into it time and time again. And, and, you know, in some cases, we don't even get the courtesy of a response. We don't get people that will talk to us. We get people pointing to other agencies or we get people saying the law doesn't apply when that's mistaken. And so, yes, this was not something that we weren't prepared for, or didn't expect based on prior interactions. But Pennsylvania has this particular provision of the law that you were able to use here to take the case further legally. Can, can you tell us how that works? So Pennsylvania has um, a private complaint statute. And so what it essentially allows is for a private citizen to file a complaint and have it reviewed by the district attorney. And so we knew, I mean, we knew that it was going to get declined again because we knew that the district attorney had declined it the first time. I think the key distinction with this Pennsylvania statute is that it allows the private complainant to appeal to a trial court if the district attorney denies. And so that's where this was different. And that's where this sort of allowed us to continue to pursue this case. This is already getting exhausting. The amount of work you people had to put into this is unbelievable. But, you know, we know that's how it is. So what happened in the trial court? So the trial court got our complaint. And the first thing they did was they asked the district attorney to provide their reasons for why they denied our complaint. And this gets key because this gets into the standard of review issue. And the district attorney provided their reasons and they essentially said, based on the applicable law and the evidence, we, we declined the complaint. So they gave sort of a brief answer there. The trial court ultimately reviewed it and then issued a 13-page opinion saying they agree and they're upholding the district attorney's decision and they sort of went through, you know, a list of the evidence that the district attorney allegedly reviewed, most of which did not include anything that we had submitted. And then they ultimately said that we see no evidence that any of these laws have been violated. District attorney's decision is upheld. So that was their ruling. Was, it, was this on papers or, or did you argue it? Uh, that was completely on papers. There was no oral argument in that case. It would be interesting to hear what the oral argument would be like. All right. This is a little bit of an aside. Like, how do you account for this? I mean, this is a really, like, of course, we've, we're lawyers. We've all seen bad decisions from courts. But it happens over and over again. You under, I mean, you kind of understand the district attorneys because they, they're elected and they're in the county. I assume they're elected in Pennsylvania and they're in the county where this farm exists and there's a certain culture. But how do you attribute it to that the trial court would do such a bad job of reviewing this and not? You know, I think almost anybody looking at, assuming they looked at any of the video, like a, a normal human being is pretty horrified. Like, how do you, how do you explain this? Or don't yeah, you? I, is that a fair well, question? No. <laughs> I, I, I certainly can't speak for the specific logic that the trial court applied or, or get in their mind. I mean, I think the superior court made it clear, and I know we'll get to that opinion, which is essentially that key yeah, evidence that's, was that's ignored. Actually, that's actually the subject of this interview. I just haven't gotten to it yet. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think the short answer is that for whatever reason, key evidence was ignored. I mean, we submitted over four hours of video and almost 100 pages of documentation. But for whatever reason, the trial court decided to credit, you know, evidence that was unfavorable to us versus the wealth of evidence that was favorable to our case. And so I can't speak to the motivation. I mean, to me, back to our earlier conversation, my sense is that people's knee-jerk reactions across this country is just that farmed animals don't get the same protection. So there's sort of this like deference that says, this is not cruelty. It can't be cruelty. These animals are used for food. We don't treat them the same. Whether that was the case or not, I don't know. But that is clearly not what the law says. Yeah, obviously, I'm asking you to answer an unanswerable question that we all ask ourselves all the time. But that makes as much sense as anything. All right. So you appealed. You not only get to bring this to the trial court, the trial court rejects it, you get to appeal. Again, was was that argued? Was your appeal argued? Yes, we did have oral argument for the appeal. That was uh, October 26th of last year. All right, so let's t- let's just discuss the standard of review, which seems really important in this case. Can you tell us when you were entitled to de novo review and how important that is to your case? Under Pennsylvania law, and there's actually a very robust body of case law related to private complaints in Pennsylvania. So this, what we did is not like some random anomaly that's never been brought in 150 years, there's a pretty significant body. And a lot of those relate to cases of police misconduct or things of that nature. And so this has been a vehicle for other individuals. And so to your question, Marianne, there's two standards of review that apply, and they hinge on what the justification was for the district attorney in denying the complaint. And so if the district attorney denies the complaint on legal grounds, then we get de novo review. So if there was a purely legal conclusion that said, I'm denying for this reason, and it's a legal reason, de novo review, which is obviously what we wanted. If they deny on policy grounds or a combination of policy and legal conclusions, which the courts call a hybrid reason, then there's abuse of discretion review. And that's obviously much more deferential to the district attorney. And here, the court found that it was completely on the law. Do you think this was a mistake on the part of the of the DA? Or they just didn't want to concede that there actually was a violation of, of the law and, and they were using their discretion to, to ignore it? Yeah, I can't speak to what their, their mental state was. I think they, they clearly made mistakes. I mean, they clearly did not review the evidence. You know, you can read in some of their brief in the interpretations of the exemptions and even the mens rea requirements just do not sync up with the law. And I don't think that's really arguable. Like there's plain statements that are just patently incorrect. And so I certainly think that there were mistakes made in their evaluation of the evidence as well as the application of the law. And one of the most important factors that ended up being a result of this that the court seemed to focus on is that the trial court didn't view the evidence in in a light favorable to prosecute. I, I keep getting confused on this because here, (laughs) correct me if I'm wrong, they had to view the evidence in the light most favorable to prosecution, but that's not the same as the light most favorable to the prosecutor in this this instance, because the prosecutor is against prosecution. Did I just confuse everybody? (laughs) I mean, there's been many times, Marianne, where I've sat here and had to pause and get my head around who was doing what and what was (laughs) happening, because you're absolutely right. This whole argument has been against the district attorney and the district attorney you would traditionally think of as the prosecutor. But in this case, the district attorney is arguing for Martin Farms that they don't want to prosecute, that no crime was committed. So we are arguing against the district attorney to try to force them to prosecute. So it is a little bit of a weird construction. 
Yeah. All right. If I, if I get it wrong again, just just yell at me because I, I did get hung up on that a couple of times reading these papers. All right. This is such an important factor that I just want to dwell on it a little bit more because the court pointed out that if this had been a discretionary decision by the prosecutor rather than on the law, I mean, it would be a different standard. And also their subsequent decision to the farm's subsequent decision to clean up their act, which they alleged they were doing, might have been relevant to the prosecution. Well, I guess if it's discretionary, anything can be relevant. But why would that be relevant to whether you should prosecute, even if it's a discretionary decision on the part of the DA? Yeah, I mean, the the DAs traditionally in this country or prosecutors have a lot of authority to make discretionary decisions. And so there's a wealth of reasons that they could have said, like, I don't feel like prosecuting this. There's a lot of case law that talks about, oh, we don't have the resources to prosecute this, or there's more important crimes or those types of things. I think the point you make is is important. And, and just to call out a, a point of the case or the Superior Court case, which is the Superior Court explicitly said the fact that you have decided to retrain people, fire people, whatever the case is, that does not negate what already happened. And so that's another one of those things that we see time and time again is the farm will come out with an announcement saying we're horrified this happened. It's unlike what we normally do. We fired people. We've instituted training. And, and in many cases, that's enough for a prosecutor to say like, oh, I'm, that's good enough. I'm not going to do it. That's not what happened here. I mean, the prosecutor made errors of law in their legal conclusions before they ever got to any discretionary decision. But I do think it was critical that the court pointed that out, that that doesn't negate the crime because that happens over and over again. Yeah, no, it it seems entirely critical. And as the court, I mean, the court specifically pointed out, just because somebody quits selling drugs doesn't mean that they can't be prosecuted for having sold drugs last week or something like that, which seems obvious in every other type of crime. But for some reason, in animal cruelty, just this avowal that you're going to stop, no matter how suspect that avowal is, seems to be enough to make it not a crime in a lot of people's eyes. All right, let's get to the mens rea issue, because I promised we were going to get to this. Can you just talk about what the different mens rea requirements are for these different crimes? The key one here is really cruelty. I mean, it, it depends on all of them. So neglect is a, a statute that doesn't have a mens rea, if I recall. And so under Pennsylvania law, that means that you at least have to prove recklessness. So you've got sort of a low bar of recklessness. And then the same applies to cruelty, but recklessness is actually written in the statute. So it talks about intentionally, knowingly, recklessly. That was a fundamental point of argument throughout sort of the early part of the appeal was it, it seemed to us that the prosecution was sort of imputing this requirement that the conduct had to be willful, right? So there's language in their expert veterinarian statement that talks about there was no willful cruelty, and it seems like that was relied on very heavily. The issue is that's not what the statute says. The statute allows for recklessness. It allows for a lower mens rea, um, and so that was a big point of argument in the appeal. Is there a difference in your mind or in the in Pennsylvania law? Because there is a New York law, I think, which doesn't usually use the term willful. But I think there's an implication that there's a difference between willful and intentional, that willful implies like bad motive almost, like you want the animal to suffer, whereas intentional just means you have to intend to do the act which causes suffering. They don't have to prove what your animus was. I know this is getting a, a little complicated, and I don't know whether I'm being clear, but to be intentional in Pennsylvania, do they have to intend that the animal suffer? Do they have to, does the prosecutor have to prove that they intended that the animal suffer? 
or just that they intended to, in this case, burn the animal's skull. Like it, it wasn't an accident. It, you know, it wasn't, they didn't fall suddenly with a hot iron in their hand and burn the animal. What does intent mean as opposed to willful? Because they kept using the term willful. Intent, to my recollection in Pennsylvania, it, intentional wasn't terribly key to this case, but my recollection is it's the intent to do the act. So it's not the intent to have any malice or anything like that. It's the intent to do the act. And to your, your comment about willful, Pennsylvania statutes actually explicitly say that willful means knowingly. And so that is cleared up. And so we have a statute that says willful means knowingly. And so that's all well and good for us. But our argument was generally, I don't need to prove intentional. I don't need to prove willful. I don't need to prove knowingly. All I need to do is prove recklessly. And, you know, that's enough to get cruelty. So that was sort of the crux of that argument. Okay, I'm, I'm going off into a unnecessary, but so interesting area. At least in New York law, I find so many statutes, criminal statutes, usually spell out the intent that they have to have, people have to have with the intent to cause serious bodily injury with the intent. And the animal cruelty statute doesn't do that, just uses the word. So courts have gone different ways on what kind of intent they need to have, depending on which way they can basically let off the defendant. But I digress. The court also said that they cherry-picked the evidence. This seems obviously true. It was kind of unbelievable what, what the, I, the appellate court decision said that the trial court had done in looking at this evidence. Can you just kind, kind of go through what evidence there was and what evidence the DA chose to rely on? So there was, as I said earlier, a wealth of evidence. And so, as I mentioned, we had four hours of video. We had documentation, a sort of detailed incident statement that included 327 incidents that we believe constituted cruelty or neglect. We had an expert statement by Dr. Holly Cheever, who had viewed the video and described sort of some of the practices engaged in. That was some of our evidence. And so from the other side, from Martin Farm's side, the district attorney or the state police had collected other information from Martin Farms veterinarian of 35 years. They had interviewed the owner. They had interviewed the supervisor. They talked to sort of this co-op organization that allegedly provided animal welfare training to the group. And then one of their key pieces of evidence was from a, a Pennsylvania veterinarian that used to work for the Pennsylvania state vet and who has made comments in the past that seem particularly favorable to ag-gag type laws. He wrote up a report and evaluated the evidence as well. And so there was all of that to go by. To your question, Marianne, the district attorney did cherry pick. I mean, the Superior Court said they handpicked evidence. And so the district attorney and the trial court both looked at evidence that was favorable to Martin Farms. They looked at the statement from the former Pennsylvania state vet. They looked at evidence from the videos that, that may or may not have supported Martin Farms. They looked at evidence from the vet for Martin Farms for 35 years, and they sort of said, let's take all this animal outlook evidence and push it over to the side. We're not going to mention it. We're not going to mention that Holly Cheever, Dr. Holly Cheever says this is cruelty. We're not going to mention that clearly cows are thrashing and bellowing. And they basically ignored that evidence and looked at the evidence favorable to Martin Farms. And that's what the Superior Court noted. Yeah. And what were the actual incidents? I mean, I know the probably the primary one, or at least the what sounds like the primary one, and the court thought it was the primary one, had to do with dehorning. But there were other instances as well that were focused on by the appellate court. Can you just go through them? And without getting overly graphic, tell us, tell us what your evidence was able to show. So dehorning was one of the key points that we, we distinctly wanted to argue about because we felt that the evidence on both sides did not dispute that this was cruelty. So 
the vet for the Pennsylvania State Police and the DA, his evidence clearly said that things were done wrong. Our evidence clearly said that things were done wrong. So there was sort of this agreement on both sides that there was cruelty. As far as what we captured, we captured a number, probably dozens of incidents of Martin Farms taking young calves and sort of lashing their heads to metal rails and then driving a hot iron into their skulls. And so we pointed out that there were a number of issues here that even compared to dairy industry standards, things were done wrong. The calves were too old. Their, their horn buds had already attached to their skulls. No pain medication was used. There was improper handling. So dehorning was one topic. We also argued about movement and handling of downed cows. There was a lot of incidents, and, and you know, downed cows suffer tremendously in all these, these institutions. There was a lot of moving down cows with tractors or lifting them up with hip clamps, which was improper. We also argued about tail twisting and, and bending tails or pulling tails and then a few others, but really sort of the movement of down cows, the tail twisting, and then primarily the dehorning were sort of the key areas we focused on. Yeah. And as you pointed out, one of your major ways to argue that these were not normal within the meaning of Pennsylvania law was dairy industry standards. This seems to be just a really important place where the dairy industry having, because of all the work that Animal Outlook and other organizations have done, exposing what happens, they put out, no, 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 that's not how it should be done. There are these standards and this is how it should be done. And then you were able to use that to show that this is not normal. This is not customary or whatever the standard is. Is that right? It is. And the, I would say the Superior Court even went further and I'll explain that in just a second, but you're absolutely right. There are so many of these industry standards, not just in dairy, but in poultry and in beef and that sort of stuff that is largely geared towards the consumer to say, hey, look at us. Like we have these standards. We're doing these things great. There's great animal welfare. And so many factory farms and slaughterhouses sign up for these standards and say, you know, look at what we're doing. So we did have a wealth of standards. You know, we had standards that talked about dairy welfare and whether pain medication should be used in disbudding, how down cows should be moved. And so when you go back to that normal agricultural operations exemption, we had what we felt like was something of a baseline, you know, to say even the dairy industry that, you know, dairy animal welfare isn't paramount to that industry. Even they set such low standards and those were not met here. But the Superior Court, I think if you read their opinion, they, they went a little further and they even said, we don't even have to look at that. We have to look at what a reasonable person would have done in this case. And so um, I think they've added that additional lens to it. But, but yes, it was absolutely key to our argument to say, you didn't even meet the standards that you say you're adhering to and 98% of the dairies adhere to. How can this be normal? So that was key to our argument. I mean, I just want to kind of reiterate that this is a salute to the work of, uh, no matter how long and slow and slogging this work seems to be, if it hadn't been for all of the undercover investigations over the years exposing these cruelties, then the industry would not have felt the need to put out these standards. And now the standards are being used in legal cases to show that this is not a normal and customary farming practice exemption. So it is a first step and an important part of getting the courts to actually look at, at this. And, and as you said, in this case, went even further. But if those standards hadn't existed, courts don't know what age calves are supposed to be dehorned at, supposed to be uh, yeah, in, yeah. in quotations. And, and so the fact that these standards exist seems to be really important in making these arguments. 
there was some evidence that didn't consist of video, but merely the word of your undercover investigator. And now clearly testimony is good as evidence. It's used in every, it's every criminal case in the country. But I'm just wondering, the court here did treat this as it should, as, as valid evidence. But is this different from situations of the past? In the, in the past, I mean, do you generally feel like you need to get video of things in order for anybody to pay attention? Two, two things, just to jump back real quick to your earlier point. Like, yes, the undercover investigations are fundamental to so much of what the animal rights movement does. And I think a lot's been made of this legal case. But for us, this legal case does not happen without the undercover investigation. And so it was critical. And, and you know, our deputy director of investigations, Aaron Wing, was the one that was there. And so this case was made possible by that. But to your question, Marianne, yeah, it certainly helps to have video. Even when we have video, you can find people saying, oh, that's not cool, or this doesn't fit under the law. And so certainly not having video, you know, puts us at even a further disadvantage. But you're right. I think the Superior Court looked at all the evidence in totality and and considered, you know, the video plus the non-video evidence. I, I know this is a controversial issue right now within the movement. How do you suggest culpability should be distributed between the facility and the workers? How 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 did you draft your complaints in this way? Um, Our complaints were sort of, I would say, all-encompassing. I would say our goals when we go for prosecution are to make the most strategic change that we can, which really means going after the corporation. It means going after the owners. And we certainly did that here. Mentally, we did include employees here. There were some acts of just egregious cruelty that warranted punishment. But it is critical for us that we included Martin Farms. We included Martin Farms' owner, We included the supervisor for Martin Farms. And so that higher level echelon of management that was directing this was included. And I think one of the important takeaways from the Superior Court's opinion is that some of the charges that they ordered to be filed were against Martin Farms. And so the corporation itself, as well as the owners. And so for us, I think we're going to make the most lasting strategic change by going after the corporations and after the owners. But we did certainly include workers as well. But our focus is usually on the corporations and the owners. Do you feel that this case kind of breathes life into the idea, which I think a lot of us have have believed but have kind of despaired of, that animal cruelty laws can protect farmed animals, that there is that this is a starting point? I would say I'm cautiously optimistic that that may be the case. I don't think anybody should say the tides have changed. Cruelty laws are always going <laughs> yeah. to be effective. I think that would be a false illusion. But I think a lot of times people are very dismissive of the cruelty laws and say, oh, it doesn't work. Enforcement doesn't work you're going after an individual person. I think I would challenge that in this particular case and that we now have a superior court decision that is published and is now the law of the state of Pennsylvania, one of the top 10 agricultural states in the country that speaks to standard practices. It speaks to certain things that can and cannot be done. I mean, Pennsylvania, last time I checked, has 300 million or so animals in agriculture. And so um, this isn't about It was, in this case, about one specific farm, but I think cruelty laws in general have utility beyond that. So whether it breathes life into it or not, I don't know, but I think people should think twice about the utility of cruelty laws and not give up so quickly on these laws. There's a lot of room for legal argument, um, and I think there's a lot of sort of paths that are worth trying, as, as hopefully we demonstrated here. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I feel sad that sometimes I am cited along with David Wilson for the idea that Cruelty laws don't apply to farmed animals, but that's not what these exemptions say. It's so important from a legal point of view. Like, they don't exempt farmed animals. They exempt customary farming practices or words to that effect, as in Pennsylvania. And that means that there are legal arguments that can be made. 
a lot of people have this knee-jerk reaction that they're farmed animals. It's not a dog, it's not a cat, or maybe even a horse. And so anything can be done to that animal. What we've been arguing throughout this case is if you take the time to read the plain language of the statute, that is not what it said. There are a number of protections for farmed animals in Pennsylvania law, and we just sort of had to wind that path and finally get to somebody, the Superior Court, thankfully, that agreed with us. I mean, I think it's it's key to mention we've never been arguing during this case to grant new rights or to change the law. We've literally been banging our head against the wall to say, this is your law as written. It protects these animals please apply it. And so you're absolutely right. Like animals are generally not categorically exempt. There are certain conditions or qualifiers, but that does not mean that there are not legal arguments that can be made. Are there any important takeaways from this decision that I haven't asked you about or facts that you want to add? I mean, I think there's a few additional things. You know, I I think one, this private complaint mechanism for Pennsylvania was instrumental for us. It allowed us to sort of get past that barrier of a prosecutor that did not want to pursue it, which we run into in state after state. And so I think that was very helpful for us. I would again echo that this has been used many other times in cases not involving animals. So it's not just useful for animal issues, it's useful for human issues as well. I think that we've already talked about farmed animals being protected. Like we just said, they're not categorically exempt. The investigation that we had was important. I would also add, we had great local counsel in Pennsylvania. Um, Todd Mays from Mays, Conard, and Rotenberg helped us tremendously with the procedure and sort of state specifics. I think the takeaway for us is investigations are important. The laws in written do protect farmed animals, and there are certain procedural avenues that, that can be used, and I, I think it's worth a try, as, as hopefully will be the case here. We do have a appeal up to the, or a petition for appeal up to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. So I'll be a little pessimistic and say the case is not over. We're on our fifth round of defending this, but we're optimistic there. I did want to ask you about that. I I looked briefly. You were kind enough to send me that petition made by the district attorney, and it looked like it was all procedural arguments about the, the standard of review. They don't even want an abusive discretion review, but tell me if I read this right. It should be reviewed on a standard that it has to be blatantly discriminatory. They, they added blatantly to thing, arbitrary or pretextual and therefore not in the public interest. Is that an, is that an additionally high standard to abuse of discretion that they, they would want such a, a, a case reviewed? I mean, the funny thing about that is that the, the language that was used in that brief, at least in my opinion, that is the language of the abuse of discretion standard in Pennsylvania. Like you can find that. And so essentially they're saying, get rid of de novo, get rid of abuse of discretion, adopt this new standard. But the new standard already is abuse of discretion. But I think what's key in that argument is that they don't want de novo review. They don't want courts to review like in any way that might sort of preclude complete deference to the district attorney. That argument is a little shocking in its breadth. It's basically, we're okay to make legal error, just defer to us unless it's discriminatory. And then they've also made some sort of constitutional separation of powers arguments and things of that nature. But that case, hopefully we'll have success there. You know, there's a long road to go. So we're just getting started on that petition. I mean, it seems to me this is blatantly arbitrary. (laughs) So even even with their insane standard, this is so bad that I think that... uh, Not that I want, I mean, I want it obviously to be de novo review because that's a pretty high standard, blatantly arbitrary, but, but wow. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I mean, ignoring all the evidence on one side seems to be pretty arbitrary. 
You could certainly make, I mean, fortunately, we haven't had to make that argument. You know, we, we, I think you could. I think you could argue that sort of ignoring the evidence met even an abuse of discretion standard. But we feel strongly that de novo review was appropriate. That's what the trial court granted. That's what the superior court granted. That's what's consistent with Pennsylvania case law. So I don't believe there's any reason to have to make that argument in the first place. So as you pointed out, one of the reasons for your success was this provision of Pennsylvania law that allowed you to bring in this case. Do you think that there are other opportunities similar or completely different or who knows in other state law? And if you start going through state statutes, you find all sorts of stuff. Do you think they're out there that might allow lawyers for animals to bring cruelty cases that are ideas that are yet untapped? Absolutely. And at the risk of sounding like a legal nerd, that's one of my favorite things to do <laughs> is to look through statutes for these provisions. And I think I can safely say that there are a number of them. They don't all take the form of Pennsylvania. There are other provisions that allow private complaints, but not with a review. There are some where you can even potentially directly approach a, a grand jury. There's some where you can file a complaint that'll go directly to a lower court judge. And so this goes back to the conversation about cruelty statutes. I don't think we should give up so quickly because, you know, those statutes in their own have utility and then there may be other avenues to, to bring those. And so I think that's part of our job as animal lawyers is to be creative and exhaust those avenues. And the short answer to your question is, yes, I absolutely think there are other, other paths. I can't imagine there aren't. I kind of remember one in, in New York thinking a long time ago, not that I did anything with it, but. There was a, a statute, it didn't allow you to bring a prosecution, but it allowed you to get a warrant, which would be useful in and of itself. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that statute is actually replicated in other states, California, Idaho, others. And so that's a means for a citizen or an organization to invoke sort of a complaint. Yeah, you may not get that far, but it at least allows you to sort of get a foot in the door. So I think it's, it's worth exploration. So what are next steps? Is the prosecution going to be stayed pending the Supreme Court's decision on whether to review? Is anything moving forward? And who's going to prosecute if somebody does prosecute? Or do you not know yet? I don't know. I mean, to your question of what's next, I mean, the next step is sort of this um, petition for allowance of appeal. And, and, you know, we are obviously taking that incredibly seriously. Anything could happen there. So the district attorney petitioned the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania to hear the appeal. We're hopeful that that won't be granted, but we are fully intent on arguing this a fifth time if necessary. And then to your question, who will prosecute, you know, if that appeal turns out favorable for us? I don't really know, honestly. Theoretically, the district attorney would recuse themselves. That question came up in oral argument at the Superior Court, and the answer given was that, yes, they would recuse themselves because they've already reviewed and don't feel like a crime was committed. That could mean that the Attorney General of Pennsylvania comes in. Um, so I, I don't know. It's sort of wait and see. We just we are completely focused on this petition for appeal to the Supreme Court. We just would like to get past that. Is there a potential statute of limitations issue? There could be. I don't believe there is. That hasn't been raised yet. Um, I don't think under the law that there is. So we'll address that when the time comes, if necessary. Lots still to go in this case. And you have done so much work on this case. You pointed out that that would be your fifth time to try to get this case addressed? Yeah, if we go to the Pennsylvania, I mean, there was the initial request to the district attorney, then there was the private complaint to the district attorney, then there was the petition to the trial court, then there was the appeal to the Superior Court, and now we're at the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. So this would be round number five, but we're fully committed. I mean, we believe in this case, we believe in finding justice for what happened to those cows. What was documented there by our investigation was 
was terrible, and we have no intention to give up on that lightly. We firmly believe that crimes were committed um, and that the district attorney should prosecute. Well, I certainly hope that somebody prosecutes, and I'm incredibly grateful to you guys for doing this case, and to you in particular, for doing the case and for coming on to talk to us about it, because I love this stuff. I, I, I do think that there's a, there are many valuable gems to be mined in the law that could be used to protect animals under, under cruelty laws, including farmed animals. So thank you so much for doing it. Thank you for sharing it with us. Yeah, thank you. I'm a longtime listener. It's surreal for me to get to talk to you on this podcast, so I appreciate it. There was a lot of people on our end that had a hand in this. This definitely was not me. It started with Aaron and our investigation, so I think we've, we've got a good group effort, and we're, we're hopeful that it'll end in a positive outcome. And I should mention that Aaron was on the Our Hen House podcast, oh, not too, maybe a year ago. She wasn't talking in particular about this case, but, but her story was fascinating and moving, and um, I recommend to people to listen to that as well. And Thank you to all of you. Great work. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for joining us on the Animal Law Podcast. We'll be back next month with a new show. Thanks so much to Will Lowry for sharing his thoughts and expertise with us on this amazing case. Thank you to Jen Riley and Vicki Beachler for their help in producing the podcast. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Consider leaving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, and if you're able, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at OurHenHouse.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. 